You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Great pleasure to have Ramesh Srinivasan and uh, Shahid Buttar with us tonight. Uh, no strangers to City Lights, we've had them both here before, and really celebrating a very, very important book. Uh, it's called Beyond the Valley how innovators around the world are overcoming inequality and creating the technologies of tomorrow. It's published by friends at MIT Press. Uh, Ramesh is professor of information studies and design media arts at UCLA. He makes regular appearances on NPR, The Young Turks, MSNBC, uh, Public Radio International. Uh, His writings have been published in The Washington Post and Huffington Post, uh, CNN, and many other outlets. Uh, He's also the author of another wonderful book. It's called uh, Who's Global Village? Rethinking How Technology Shapes Our World. That was published by NYU Press. Um, Ramesh is a great activist as well as a scholar. I mean, he's given a great deal of thought of how technology affects culture, what our options are in terms of changing our relationship to technology and encouraging cultural diversity and, and social justice. So uh, Shahid, as I said, is also no stranger to City Lights. So he's a uh, public interest advocate, a civil rights attorney, a singer, a songwriter, a poet, DJ, and MC, uh, yeah. and a writer here based in San Francisco. Really a great honor to have you both here at City Lights. You're very kind. Thanks for great Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you to Peter for the introduction and all of you for choosing to spend your Sunday afternoon, evening with us. We're excited to be here. I'm excited to hear from Ramesh. And uh, maybe one question I'd want to offer you just to get us started. You know, one of the overarching themes of the book, I feel like, is this encouragement to people to think, as the title would suggest, beyond the valley. And this idea of rooting the future of the internet in its decentralized, more anarchic past. Can you talk a little bit about that, how the future might look more like the past than the present, and that, that sort of yeah. theme of recalling an age and an ethos that we might be losing? Yeah, so this book is, um, and I'm gonna give a short talk on it. Uh, yeah, whenever whenever the time is right. But I just, but this is a great question. So the internet has, has always been fetishized and in a computational sense is decentralized, right? You switch packets. It's 50 years old as of last Tuesday, actually. And so the internet actually functioned in a way where the architecture of the internet felt like it was decentralizing, right? And in a sense, that actually had that sort of cultural history. Anyone, anywhere in theory, though that was never actually true in practice, could send a message or share information or exchange with one another. And that had this idea of like being rhizomatic, like Gilles Deleuze's ideas, right? So like this idea that it was an alternative to centralized political and corporate power, the hegemony of hierarchy, right? So architecturally, it felt that way. And I'm going to speak about this in a moment. But what ended up happening is control existed in the context of decentralization. Because as, and I'll talk about this also in a moment, as we all started to put our stuff up online, we didn't realize that someone was hanging out in the middle. We now realize that more and more. And that every transaction between peers had a third party uh, in the middle that was not only monetizing the exchange, surveilling the exchange, but also now we're increasingly realizing manipulating those exchanges. So this is a moment now, and this book is optimistic yet critical, and it's full of stories, and you'll hear about this in a minute from all over the world, but this is a moment now where we can introduce a number of progressive uh, sort of policies, movements, design practices, 
and even imaginaries onto the digital internet. And that, that's, and that's actually what the book is all about. The book is, the book is intended to say, hey, we're at an inflection point. We realize there are a lot of issues occurring. Even Morning Joe realizes that, which is why I was on there on Tuesday, you know, which is kind of a trip. And, um, and the fourth time on there. And, and here's an opportunity for us to like, to like ensure that there's at the minimum a balance, right? There's a minimum a balance between business interests and people's interests. But even more so, let's tip the scales toward justice, people, and equity around technology. And so how do we start to get there? But before I start, I do want to just acknowledge that Shahid is not just a, a badass in many different senses, as you just heard. He is also a, a progressive justice Democrat leader who is running in March and will be on the ballot in March um, contesting uh, Nancy Pelosi right here in San Francisco in the right ways. And I have, I have publicly endorsed Shahid um, once the Bernie people let me do that. I'm also a surrogate for Bernie Sanders for 2020, so I should say that. Um, and that doesn't mean I dislike other candidates, um, but it does mean I highly prefer Bernie to everyone else. Um, and I do just want to give you a moment to, to, uh, to speak to that, uh, if you'd like, sure. either now or later, and then I'll start with my, my That's stuff. That's perfect. Okay, yeah, cool. thanks, Ramesh. Yeah, sure. I'll make this quick. Um, in that context, the reason I'm challenging Pelosi, in fact, originally stems from some of the very same themes that Ramesh talks about in the book. Uh, the co-optation of the Internet as a tool for global surveillance, the co-optation of our city's voice in its creation, you know, our elected voice in Washington is one of the architects of that surveillance state, which has grown metastatic in the years since. One of the most recent projects I had a chance to undertake when I was still at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, I recently left to focus full-time on the campaign, uh, but one of my uh, prior projects was advocating for the law we recently passed here in San Francisco. Do people know that we are the first city in the country to ban the use of surveillance, uh, face surveillance technology in the hands of government agencies? So just to wrap up the piece about our campaign, we're running on the future of the party and the country, Medicare for all, the Green New Deal. If you're concerned about a corporate predatory healthcare system that uses sick people as opportunities to extract wealth from them instead of dignified people who deserve care, if you're tired of a fossil fuel industrial complex, war machine plunder for profit set of industries that are racing us off a climate cliff, if you're concerned about racial justice and the fact that police kill with impunity in this country, uh, we need to do something about it. And that's exactly what my candidacy offers you the chance to be a part of. I've uh, been a civil rights lawyer for 20 years. I trained and taught at Stanford Law School. While I was there, and this gets again maybe to one of the themes of the book, I started at Stanford to study antitrust law because I'd worked in the financial services sector in Chicago in the 90s and understood sort of the power of big business and how it was distorting everything, frankly, including our culture. While I was there, any number of things happened. First, the Bush versus Gore decision sort of lays bare the farce of what passes for law in our country. A year later, the Patriot Act was enacted, then Bush evades Iraq, and that surrounding set of events, to be part, for instance, of the resistance here in San Francisco that laid siege to the city nonviolently for 36 hours, while you know, being in the courts in Washington, fighting for campaign finance reform, advancing marriage equality, briefing Congress on the House side on proposed surveillance reform while getting arrested in the Senate for an act of journalism. I mean, I've had this opportunity over 20 years to be inside and outside the institutions. And in, for just that reason, I think I have an, uh, an established track record of representing our city's values in a character consistent with our cities in this space, particularly proudly countercultural history. And that's one reason why I'm particularly honored to be here at City Lights. 
Uh, and the, the internet also was rooted in some countercultural roots, which is sort of getting at that uh, first question. But yeah, I'm eager to hear how you present the book, and we can dive into questions. All right, so I'm going to just talk about the book for about uh, about about 20 to 30 minutes. Shahid, would you be okay? Yeah, I'll come um, Shahid and I have actually been followed somewhat similar paths, which I think is really cool. We first met um, on an Al Jazeera English show, so we didn't actually meet in a physical sense, but we were both on this on this show talking about digital justice and digital rights, like probably seven or eight years ago. Yeah, like felt like a decade. And then I am a guest host at times and do a lot with the Young Turks in Los Angeles. And um, it was super cool, like the other day, just to see them, like they had an ad running or kind of like a promo running, and it was Shahid hanging out with them. And I was like, I know that guy, and I wasn't supposed to say anything, and I just like blasted it out live. <laughs> so, all right. So, um, I'm going to sit, but if you'd like me to stand, I can. Um, I prefer standing in a lot of ways. Um, so this book is really interested in not just technology platforms. It's not just about Facebook. It's not just about Twitter. It's not just about these sort of ticky-tack, but important issues that our media pays attention to, specifically our mainstream media, and even to a lesser extent, our progressive media. Um, this book is interested in questions and concerns of how to restore humanity and balance in relation to the technologization of society, specifically the technologization of almost every aspect of our lives in relation to digital internet networked technology, right? So that's what it's interested in. The question is, is what happens when the internet, which is no longer about going on the web, which is no longer about a single app on our phone, but is actually the language by which almost every form of communication and experience and life chances and possibilities, the foreclosure of possibilities also, you know, to quote Judith Butler on that, is actually expressed through digital technologies that are privately controlled by companies that by their very definition might have a lot of nice people working for them, right? It's not about calling anyone out here but by their very definition have to accumulate as much in terms of speculated valuation, if not revenues, and therefore profits, as possible. So it's actually about that blurring between the sort of private corporate interests, which are fundamental to our country, though deeply problematic in many ways, and the public sphere that is the internet, and the fact that the internet has now become the space of mediation of almost every aspect of our lives. We receive life insurance through algorithmic technologies. How do we get that? We don't know. What data is known about it? We don't know. How is that data being computed? We don't know. Do they have access to our credit card records? Yes, they do, but is, how is that being used? Is it including data from when I was 18, when I was like caught smoking weed? That's available to me when I'm at 40. That's a hypothetical, by the way. Like, uh, <laughs> I was smoking weed, but I wasn't caught. Um, <laughs> um, is that available? That's, that's, that's the retention of data, the aggregation of data. These practices are influencing every aspect of our lives from how we receive news, and that's my angle with Morning Joe and so on, to how we, to uh, our opportunities as workers to uh, the, the ways in which our cities are reorganizing themselves right here in San Francisco, to even how we understand issues of like, or, or, or identities, right, of like race or queer identity or gendered identity, right? Every aspect of this is expressed through digital computation that is 
controlled by private corporations for their own self-interest, not necessarily intentionally in a zero-sum manner with the rest of us, but that's the issue that's at play here. So let me get started with some provocative slides. So about 20 years ago, myself, I was an AI developer. And at that time, everybody laughed about AI. It was sort of seen as a philosophical experiment. Can you build a machine that can emulate human behavior where if it was behind like a curtain, like the Wizard of Oz, you didn't know if you were interacting with a machine or a human being. This is the so-called Turing test, right? And everybody kind of laughed at that at MIT where I went to graduate school, partly because no one really saw any practical relevance for AI. Look how things have changed. Huh? Google calls itself an AI company on the record. Amazon's major investments are in AI and algorithmic and learning technologies on the cloud and on the level of e-commerce as well. Multiple ways. 5G and Internet of Thing networks are influencing our lives and are going to influence our lives through algorithmic and learning technologies that we have very little understanding of. So AI is real, and that's because of three major transformations that occurred in our world and in our society. One is it became exponentially cheaper to process and compute data, right? That's an obvious point, right? Number two is it became exponentially cheaper to store data. Now, at this point, I'd like to ask a question. How many of you had a two terabyte hard drive? See, I can barely stand there. Uh, <laughs> I have a leash on me. Um, how many of you had a two terabyte hard drive like 10 years ago? You did, everyone, every time I do this, one person gets me. <laughs> so you did, okay, and how much did it cost? A hundred something dollars for a two terabyte hard drive. So that is incredible to me. But um, more or less, there's a fancy hard drive. So, so basically, the point is that the technologies became much, much cheaper, and we began to store more. But the third and most important point is we're all leaking data 24-7, 365 with those phones in our pocket. And even if we don't have phones, maybe my friends who live in the forest here may have less of this, but you guys have Wi-Fi networks as well. Even if you are actually not kind of intentionally on a network or owning a phone, you're picked up by other sorts of signals, right, that are tracking data, that are, that are collecting data of all forms. For example, Facebook, which is, you know, everyone's symptom of a larger problem, these days is, uh, is known for collecting data on people who have never, ever, ever created a, a Facebook account. So this is very interesting, right? So what does that mean? Then it creates these issues, right, these phenomena. So AI is born as a function of that. But every algorithmic and machine learning technology is built by its creators, right? Just like this book was written by me, just like Shahid's writing and, and, and Justice and his poems and his, and his hip hop is written by him. We create technologies, we express knowledge based on who we are. The point I'm getting at here is there are biases, right? And that doesn't make us bad people, but we can build computing technology as a function of our own selves, based on who we are. That I think is a very, very important point. Because that means that AI systems are on some level are going to be reflective of the biases of their creators and designers. That's point one. Point two is with AI technologies, they learn. They're learning technologies. You feed those systems when you do machine learning work, data sets. Meaning you're going to feed them with different f data that they should learn from and make determinations of. So what happens when you, when you, when you feed a... Um, an incarceration system, like a prison prediction system, or a police uh, algorithmic system, or a courtroom sentencing system with data about our country. You're going to see those systems reinforce 
a system that already exists that disproportionately disproportionately locks black and brown people in a prison industrial complex, right? You're going to feed those systems with data for science and engineering jobs, I'll speak about this in a moment, that sees women as not equipped or not part of that world. And therefore, these systems are going to make determinations based on that. So this is a very simple example of that. This is a company called FaceApp. I, I tell this and many other stories in the book. In uh, St. Petersburg, Russia, not the most you know black and brown place in the world, where, where it was supposed to basically take people's faces and make them look more attractive. And it turned President Obama lighter skinned and younger, right? Based upon those biases that existed in that society based on the data sets it was fed to, right? So this is an interesting point, right? It's a, what are the concepts of beauty that are encoded not only by the computation of their builders and designers, but the data sets they're fed, okay? So let me, uh, we're gonna have plenty of time to ask questions to and engage with you all about this. So I just wanna kind of start by that. This is an issue that we're building this so-called open internet, but it's actually producing private discriminatory outcomes, algorithmically and through artificial intelligence systems. This is very important because my colleague, who I highlight a little bit in the last parts of the book, Joy Bolawani, who's a Ghanaian-American like spoken word poet, but she's also a PhD student at MIT, shows again and again and again across the board facial recognition systems, whether they're made by American companies or Chinese companies, have found that uh, Michelle Obama, Serena Williams, Oprah, all found to be male by every single system, right? <laughs> and this is a kind of a cool poem I show to my undergrads called AI Ain't I a Woman, <laughs> where she kind of like talks this out and visually shows these issues. So the point I'm trying to get at is the new normal is the reinforcement and normalization of discrimination and injustice and inequity. So that's why we have to get this right. And this is not something that the builders of these systems, in my mind, necessarily want. It's actually quite embarrassing for them. But when we see these issues again and again and again, it becomes very, very problematic. And I'm grateful these things are coming up because it gives us opportunities. And I can give you a million other examples from Microsoft building a Twitter chatbot that turned xenophobic, racist, and started hashtagging MAGA, Make America Great Again, within 24 hours. Or I can give you other examples like searching for African Africans on uh, Google image recognition and being retrieved with uh, images of gorillas. I give these examples in the book, okay? So this is an issue here, and this is an issue that we can all get around, and we need to regulate, audit, and think about an alternative model of design of these systems in the image of our best selves. Because sometimes I talk to people about this. I talk about, for example, algorithmic systems that are being used in courtrooms, and people say, hey, well, sure, those are showing uh, inequality in many ways, like black folk without any felony convictions being judged as at higher risk of committing a future violent crime than white folks with felony convictions. And people say, hey, well, that's better than a racist judge. And I'm like, that's a false comparison. It's not racist judge or racist algorithm. It's like, how do we make sure the world isn't racist, <laughs> right? That's like, so that's what we call aspirational AI, if you will. That's the term people are using these days. I'm like, all right, I'll run with it. But basically the idea here is how do we come together as human beings across our differences, across business interests and public interests to think about what kind of world we want, which is the much harder question, and then build technologies in that image. That's the question for me that is important here. So that's very important because we see the embedding of facial recognition, AI technologies, algorithmic technologies in almost every aspect of our lives. And I remember showing this, like I put this up on like Facebook or Twitter or what have you, and I had a bunch of my friends cracking up about it. 
They said, yeah, well, that's because a lot of people in Congress aren't that great, and maybe they are kind of criminals, and they're certainly not popular. Shahid's in Congress, I guarantee you he's going to be great. So, like, <laughs> so, so, so that, that is sort of an issue here, but actually there's something much more pernicious going on here, much more problematic, which is what we're speaking about here is Amazon has built a facial recognition system called Recognition with a K in the middle. That system is being used by ICE agents, Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents, who are going into neighborhoods not far from where I live in East LA and rounding up people. So say you were just a supporter of ICE. That's, okay, I don't know if it's cool, but that's, okay, that is. Are you a supporter of those systems falsely identifying people who are actually legal immigrants and have papers as illegal and undocumented? That's the question for you. The false positives are occurring because mugshot databases, again, which are cross-referencing faces that are captured by body cameras with AI facial recognition software, real-time for police, those are notice, noting, they're noting that the mugshot databases are disproportionately, again, the, these systems aren't able to tell the difference between different Latino faces in databases that are full of Latino and black and brown people, right? Because they're not designed by Latinos. So I ask these questions, like, what if Black Lives Matter designed some sort of criminal justice system? What would that look like? What if journalists designed, like, a Facebook newsfeed system instead of Facebook saying, hey, we're just going to, like, you know, kind of incorporate you and pay you whenever we feel like it? That's another model, right? How do we shift the sort of humanist model in relation to technology in the image of a self that is collaborative? Because what happened in this particular case is 70 plus percent of the people who were misidentified, most of these uh, Congress, Congress people weren't actually in any mugshot databases, but 70% of them were from the Congressional Black Caucus. So that's the sad side of this story. The happy stuff's coming in about 10, 10 to 15 minutes. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. There's some of it, though. Um, so, so when we think about AI and algorithmic technology, part of it is thinking about the, the human identity, vulnerable communities, working people, etc. But it's also about its impact, various types of automated systems, which is a type of AI system, right? It might be a specialized type of AI system. That's kind of the language we use of it, meaning it does specific tasks. That's another whole issue that we need to think about. I published a piece in the LA Times last week, and I have a piece coming out this week in Wired, actually, about these themes, right, in different ways. And the piece in the LA Times said, hey, what's occurring here when we see nearly half of existing jobs potentially to be overtaken by automated systems, which are going to be owned by private companies? There's great evidence and examples of this that I describe in the book around uh, Amazon's ownership of these systems, but also some data showing that gig economy workers are very, very precarious, not only in the fact of the terms of their employment, in terms of their wages, their lack of benefits, insurance, uh, et cetera, and there's a lot of stuff out on there, but that their value primarily resides in providing data that are going to incubate automated systems. So Uber is not a cash revenue positive business. I don't know if you knew that. It's mostly cash revenue negative, That's part, but, but we all use it because it's so cheap. It seems great for consumers, but it's also great for Uber. Why is that? Because the data it acquires can allow it to have a leg up on new industries, new verticals, new possibilities, new forms of expansion. That's part of the game here when it comes to tech companies. They call themselves tech companies, but they're actually attempting to digitize and computerize and technologize in their own image 
every aspect of human experience that they can. That's the goal. That's the game. And this is an Economist article arguing that 47% of jobs or so might be vulnerable to various types of automation. We have other. This is kind of. I'm not trying to, you know, go Andrew Yang here too much on you. But basically, there have been different forms of automation that have existed throughout history. He makes that point though correctly, which is that there, you know, forklifts are a type of automation. Industrial machines are a type of automation. But the scale of these forms of automation is much more profound. As a simple example of that, automated systems aren't just replacing truck drivers, taxi drivers industrial labors and so on, they're also going to replace, or at least there's attempts to have them replace in the near future, human resources workers. And that's very interesting given the study that was published by the journal Nature that I describe in the book, which the reason why that's important is they have found using a so-called text mining algorithm, which basically looks at people's CVs and makes decisions about whether they are or are not qualified for those jobs. They found in this study that women's CVs with more or less equivalent qualifications for science and technology jobs are systematically filtered out of these human resources AI systems for those jobs because they are not seen in some sort of semantic mapping technique as equipped for the nature of what those jobs require, right? You all know this. Women are seen by and large in our society, though the best of us, you know, we try to consciously overcome these biases, but women are seen across the board as not being good or as good at science and technology. I'm seeing Michelle here, who's my friend at the Media Lab, who is a great engineer <laughs> and designer, but there aren't too many, right? And we know those are the biases. In fact, when we were both in Cambridge, Lawrence Summers, Obama's buddy, and our former, our, our, the for, uh, former um, part of his cabinet made a, made a heinous statement basically saying women are not as good at this. So the problem here is that, that these technologies are reinforcing these aspects of inequality. And that's the issue. So this creates opportunities for auditing alternative modes of design, alternative modes of governance, et cetera, et cetera. So this is an issue across the board because worker issues and economic issues are very important. And I'm going to you know, do one of my Bernie surrogate lines and say, you know, we're at a point where three people have equivalent wealth in this country to 195 million people. We're also at a point where eight people have equivalent wealth to 3.9 billion people in the world. That's not caused actually by the internet. I mean, the internet has facilitated some of that, but these models of the internet are gonna amplify these inequalities. And that is a really bad situation because a zero sum society or a society that's deeply unequal actually harms everybody as per Eleanor Ostrom's great work on externalities, on public investments, commons investments, the correlation between income inequality and crime, income inequality and public health issues, these kinds of themes. I can drill down on it, but there's a lot on that in the book. The book, by the way, is written journalistically so that I hope anybody can read it. It's full of stories and examples. At times, I try to be a little cheesy with it just to kind of appeal to everybody, <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I really try to get people's attention. I give examples of like a guy freaking out and attacking like a automated robotic system uh, in Long Beach, like a longshoreman. Or I give much more sad examples of uh, Uber drivers uh, killing themselves in New York City. I try to give examples to humanize these stories and experiences, because this isn't just some academic, academic hand-waving. This is real stuff, which is why I wrote this book. So there's Andrew Yang. That's one of many proposals that he has pushed out, but it's actually not a new proposal, the so-called universal basic income. I think he calls it a freedom dividend. 
whatever. But like, um, <laughs> but dividend programs have existed throughout history. I think that's an important point. Alaska has a dividend program. The Cherokee Nation have a dividend program. Dolly Parton implemented a dividend program for people affected by a fire in Tennessee. Dividend programs are ways of just giving people some money through various types of transitions. The thing about dividend programs is them in a, vacu in a vacuum, they seem good. And I, and I think Yang does do a good job of articulating some of the challenges that we're facing macroeconomically. The problem is, is at what cost, right? For example, do you want oil revenues to be the foundation of a dividend program? If oil and oil companies might be killing our planet and all of us, right? Is that what we want? Or what about this? What, is a dividend program going to come at the cost of like wage security? or pensions, or education, or healthcare, or a living wage, right? These are all themes worth thinking about. So there's a lot of value, I think, in him making this issue mainstream. I was just trying to be funny earlier. I appreciate his contributions. But it's one of many, many potential pathways that we need to experiment with and think about in relation to these technological, these private technologically aided transformations that are going to have profound impact on working class and middle and rural and definitely indigenous and, and black and brown people. That's why this is important. So the reason I signed up for Bernie is not because he's a tech guy. <laughs> he's hardly a tech guy. The reason I signed up for him is he's thinking about people and workers and justice, and I want to try to influence and assist the campaign any way I can in relation to these tech issues, which I know much more about. Okay, so. There's a lot we can do. The New York Times had an article that came out last year. This got a lot of attention saying, hey, what, let's think about work of the future. Maybe that work can be more dignified, more just, more connected to the fruits of one labor. You know, maybe that work can be safer, um, more, you know, more supportive of people's lives and interests. And so as an example, they talked about miners in Sweden who were replaced by automated systems. And those miners ended up being the people who worked with the mining machines in a safe place. You know, they weren't exposed to mining conditions, whether you like mines or not. <laughs> they weren't exposed to mine conditions, but they were who better to understand how a mine works to work with those systems than a miner, right? This is kind of an interesting point. So similarly, we can think of more relationships between humans and work. I talked to a number of labor leaders. I actually talked to a number of business leaders. I talked to a number of like labor union and kind of organization, worker councils they're called in Europe, like for example in Germany. And all these interviews are kind of presented heads at the AFL-CIO, et cetera. I really kind of went into this question of collective bargaining in the digital economy. What's the relationship between forms of labor and digital economies, et cetera, right? And so there's a lot of ideas out there. Another idea is paying people for their data. I give a lot of examples in the book. But perhaps the most, I would say, progressive one is the idea of the cooperative, right? We were just at the bakery, Vikash. What was that bakery called? Arzimendi Bakery. You all know that bakery, right? Here, in, so I didn't know it. But, it's, but then I realized that the people that actually started that bakery uh, or the organization it came out of, I wrote about in the book, which is that there are also models, and this is what Bernie has put up, for people in all enterprises to have some equity in those businesses, right? What if we built, what if we had Uber, but Uber drivers had some equity in the business? Wouldn't that create better workers, but also better feelings of community and connection? Believe it or not, this isn't just like a hippie progressive pipe dream I'm trying to push out. There's a multi, multi-trillion dollar, actually, industry, if you look globally, of what we call digital cooperatives. And these are systems that exist like an eBay, but that's owned by eBay transactors, like one's called Fairmondo. That's an example I give in the book. So I talk about this idea. This comes out of writings 
uh, by Nathan Schneider, who writes to The Guardian and other places. Um, was an early person in Occupy. He did a great review of my book that was, a t in good ways, critical also, which I appreciated. And he wrote he wrote this piece, and this is kind of an introduction to a movement that you can think of as the platform cooperative movement. But more generally, we can even think about cooperatives in a larger sense. Ace Hardware is partly a cooperative. I don't know how many of you knew that. A number of banks are, are cooperatives. So we don't have to just think it's think of the world in this kind of isolated binary way. We can think about pragmatic progressive solutions that can make things more balanced. And that's kind of what I'm arguing for again in the book. Because what has occurred is companies that are tech companies have become the biggest companies in the history of the world, not necessarily simply because of their tech, but because of their ability to be the intermediaries in every form of exchange that is the internet, right? Think about Airbnb. How many... Do you, do you know many people who work for Airbnb quantitatively? Uber drivers, like, think about Uber. Like, are Uber drivers really workers for Uber? No, they're independent contractors. We're trying to change that here in California, right? The goal of these companies, so the biggest taxi company in the history of the world is Uber, even though it calls itself a tech company, right? The biggest hotel company or accommodation company in the history of the world is Airbnb, though it calls itself a technology company. The biggest media company in the history of the world is Facebook, though it calls itself a technology company. These companies are monetizing these forms of exchange and they're providing value, okay? They're, they're efficient for consumers. They give people various possibilities, but at what cost, both shorter and longer term, right? And how do we get everybody on the same page with it? And I'll tell you what, like as a former MIT kid and an engineer, I didn't think about any of these issues as a technologist. And at the most naive level, I could just say, hey, like we just didn't integrate, uh, you know, sociology, anthropology, cultural studies, post-colonial studies, gender studies. Oh, we just didn't integrate it into our education. And that doesn't, I don't want to blame any engineer for that. I want to say, here are the jobs of the future. Here are the ways we can work together. Let's build auditors or cultural translators for technology. Or, you know, let's think creatively about what those forms of labor can be. And the reason why is you can make a lot of money out of having almost no workers and owning almost nothing. And you can just make money off those exchanges, but that's socially toxic. That's economically toxic. It's turning out that that's politically toxic. And that's why the mainstream media is starting to talk about these issues. So if you actually look at the Chinese tech ecosystem, you have to realize there's another dominant global player when it comes to technology. And that's and I write about this quite a bit in the book. I did had a bunch of off-the-record interviews with Chinese tech execs. That was a tricky thing to pull off, but we managed to pull it off. <laughs> and um, there are Chinese tech companies that are worth more than um, Facebook, for example, at least as of last year, Tencent, which has built interest, very interesting technologies, an integrative platform that some of you might know of called WeChat. Um, it's actually worth more than Facebook because you can't understand the company simply by the technology. You have to understand the company by the range of different forms of ownership it has. Facebook should not be understood as a thing that only old people do in the United States increasingly, <laughs> or people over like 40 or whatever. Um, Facebook is, own, is also understood as the company that owns Instagram, that owns other sorts of WhatsApp, which is huge across the global south. And similarly, Tencent is not just WeChat, it's also a, a, a gaming, a mobile gaming powerhouse. And that's really interesting because you, have to, you actually have to apply the political and economic logics of tech connectors, tech companies, to understand their extraterritorial practices. 
A very interesting example that I describe in detail in the book is the Silk Road Initiative, the new Silk Road Initiative uh, um, announced by Xi Jinping, which is called One Belt, One Road. And what this is attempting to do is actually, in specific ways, target from China different parts of the world for resources. Um, I spent some time in Uganda for this book, but I also was briefly on the Congolese border. And you won't believe it, you'll see mines everywhere for coltan, which is this mineral that's in all of our phones and so on, that are owned by Chinese companies, right? So that's a very interesting point, right? So the idea here, China also has a 24-7 AI news reporter now on Xinhua News. Um, the experiments are really interesting. They reflect cultural, ideological, and economic and political ideas. And I just think it's interesting to think about these issues as we think about the global, the global technology movement and the global technology transformation because the vast majority of American technology users, like web, like internet platform users and Chinese tech users, are not in China. They're not in America. They're not even in Western Europe. They're in places like South Asia, the continent of Africa, South America, and so on. So what is their voice in all of this? That's a very interesting question. So the new Silk Road Initiative is interested in AI, automated technologies, but also power over fiber optic infrastructures because, well, there's also the social credit system, but I don't maybe won't need to go into that because you all probably saw the Black Mirror episode, Nosedive. <laughs> so we can talk about that later if you're curious about it. Um, the internet is actually found of an infrastructural network in many ways, right? So the way people get the internet is, is through two modalities. One is through fiber optic cables that are underneath the ocean surface. If you're at all interested in that, read a book called The Undersea Network, which is an amazing book on these themes. But also people get it through satellites. But it's not, it's not cables everywhere between everybody. It follows the relationships of asymmetry that exist in our world. For example, look on this image here. It's pretty small. But you'll see there's just a couple cables between the continents of South America and the African continent, right? So it actually speaks to where the cables are drawn speak to relationships of economic and global power. And that's particularly interesting because if you go to the country of Kenya, where I did a lot of field work for this book, you actually see how, on the, how in Kenya that for, those forms of connectivity, the fact that there's a landing point for the fiber optic cable infrastructures in Mombasa, which happens to be one of the biggest ports in East Africa, has actually been leveraged by innovators, by entrepreneurs, by activists, by civil society organizations to take advantage of that connectivity and build all sorts of amazing technological, entrepreneurial, and civil ecosystems out of it. And I'm gonna give you some examples of that that are like super interesting. This book is full of stories from my field work in Central America, in Southern Mexico, in Central uh, Africa, and in Eastern Africa as well. So this is part of what makes my job so fun. I get to go to these places and hang out with people and learn about what they're doing and try to humanize these stories to talk about the global issue from the local and global levels. Okay, so some of the well richest material in the book, there's you know these critiques, there's interviews with famous people like Elizabeth Warren and so on, and David Axelrod and Ro Khanna right here in, in the Bay Area, um, et cetera. There's a lot of interviews with well-known people, and I'm sort of trying to triangulate across their ideas. Lawrence Lessig is another. Trying to think about their ideas and think about my own scholarship in relation to these themes, but there's also a lot in this book that tries to tell stories of what is occurring beyond the valley. That's why this book is called Beyond the Valley. 
because it's not just about critique, it's not just about Western myopia, it's not just about fetishizing inequality and surveillance and so on. It's about telling stories of new forms of innovation, doing more with less, being resourceful, innovation with scarcity. That's very interesting ideas, and you see that, and you see evidence of that throughout this book and throughout the stories I tell. Let me start by telling you about Osvaldo. So Osvaldo is a friend of mine through mutual friends. He's amazing to hang out. He's a, uh, he's a coffee farmer and a maize farmer, um, uh, corn farmer. I forgot the name for maize. <laughs> and, um, and he's a Zapotec indigenous leader. And he and 30 other Zapotec and Mixtec and Mije communities have not been provided with cell phone connectivity in the Oaxaca region of southern Mexico. Oaxaca is a magical place for any of you who haven't been there. I know you've been there. Um, it's it's uh, there's dozens of languages are spoken are spoken there. There's an incredible amount of biodiversity there. I can just tell you more and more and more. It just blows one's mind. There's pine forests, tropical rainforest species, and there's insane like cactus, and they're all like juxtaposed at six seven thousand feet altitude and up. So Osvaldo is it lives in a what what's called a cloud forest, but it's a specific type of Oaxacan cloud forest. He's part of part of an indigenous collective, an indigenous community. There's tons and tons of indigenous peoples all around southern Mexico and Chiapas as well, Guerrero, Puebla, etc. Significant percentage of the Mexican population are indigenous peoples. They weren't provided cell phone access and they said, hey, we want these cell phones. Not so we can just hang out on Facebook all day or whatever, but they wanted cell phones for multiple reasons. They wanted to communicate with one another because their fields are often quite far away from the places they live, and it's very difficult. They're on the side of steep mountains. Okay, that's one. Two is they want to connect with buying and selling so they can get fair prices. They can't get ripped off by people in the middle. And third, and very importantly, these people have many relatives who live in the Los Angeles region and actually all over the world. So it's really interesting, and they're Zapotec, Mixtec, and Mije people, different indigenous communities, and because of colonialism, not just historically but ongoing, they haven't been really permitted to write their languages down in any significant way at all. So these are spoken languages. Guess what's a good medium for speaking? Telephone. And this all comes out of a technology that is very undervalued today and under-discussed, but it's super powerful for local people all over the world, radio. Community radio, radio comunitaria, that's what they call it. And these guys are community radio people. It's cheap, it's low cost, it's oral. It allows them to control the signal. And they said, why don't we build our own networks that we collectively design and we collectively own? And that's what's happened. This is the largest community-owned uh, cell phone network in the world. It's called Rizomatica. It's named after Rizome, but it's also called Telefono Indigena Comunitaria. And these communities have built sovereign autonomous cell phone networks. That's very interesting to you. They won't centralize it. Each community maintains its own network. And they're really trying to be careful about not having one network intervene in another, even if they're neighbors and communities that get along really well. That's actually very interesting as well. And they are now trying to spread their rhizome. The rhizome is a decentralized kind of concept. I can speak about that later, like a mycelial network. Right, like a fungal network underneath the soil. There's a lot of beauty in these ideas on a visual level, but also on an expressive and architectural and even engineering level. So they're trying to spread the rhizome. There's uh, rhizomatica stuff going on in West Papua. 
like really far away from <laughs> southern Mexico. Uh, there's networks emerging in, amongst Quilombo communities in Brazil. There's networks in Colombia. There's networks like this that are also mesh networks, internet networks, ISP networks, and I'll speak about that in a minute. And those sort of community-run internet networks exist in many parts of the world, even right here in the United States. But before I go there, I want to talk to you about another amazing project that I had an opportunity to visit, started by a bunch of young Mayan kids, Celtal-speaking kids, who are all like under the age of 25. They are all from a village called uh, Abasolo, and this network is called Iktakop. And they're all kids of Zapatistas. That's kind of interesting, too. That generation is almost kind of turned over in a way. And Iktakop is translated as words in the wind. And they wanted to build their own internet network, because of course they weren't provided with access. They couldn't afford satellite connectivity, which they wanted to split into a mesh network. I'll talk about these things if you're curious about it in a little bit. So they couldn't afford a satellite network. They obviously couldn't afford or weren't provided with an ISP service. So what did they do? They bought one landline connection 30 miles away, and they rigged it to six different towers that they put on the top of local what they call cerros, which are like small hills. How did they know where to put those towers? Because they are from there, innovators in their own environment, building and designing for their own people. And these are people who actually, they, they worship the caracol, or the snail, which is actually very important in Zapatismo on a cosmological level. And they built this system in the image of these forms of identity, which is really interesting. Uh, uh, for quite graphic story, but um, when children are born in this community, they hang their um, the umbilical cords from, I've seen all this stuff, from trees in the, in the area, because there's no demarcation between the body and the land, and there's no notion of private property that exists at all there. These are just, I'm not saying like I promote all this, but I just want to open up like our incredible global and cultural and indigenous diversity that exists in our world. Those can all be blueprints for alternative third spaces of technology. Let's move past the like Facebook dystopia, which gets me on TV, but isn't actually what inspires me, right? This is like, this is what it, this is where it's at. And they're building community radio stations off of this network, et cetera. It's sustaining. Is it as fast as a Carlos Slim network or a Movistar network? No. But they're trying to do their best to sustain it in, in the image of community. And all the value that's accrued through the network redistributes in the community. So it supports all sorts of bottom-up developmental kinds of initiatives. But we have networks like this right here in the U.S., in the context of ideas like Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism, right? Like Detroit is a great place to, to kind of think about those themes. Or Red Hook in Brooklyn, which faced Superstorm Sandy. But they built their own mesh network, their own Wi-Fi network, their own community network, and they were able to be resilient after Sandy devastated that community. And in Detroit, they have a DIY sustaining community network that's in play right now. And those communities are able to use that network for education, for job growth, for digital literacy, for technical skills. And how did all these guys build this stuff? That's the question I want you to think about. And I'm going to end now in a minute. It's not by, and this is kind of what we were talking about earlier, Peter, it's not by, it's not by going to fancy universities like I went to, where you kind of learn a lot and you actually don't know how to do almost anything, <laughs> except write. <laughs> what did they do? They actually are the hackers, right? They're the actual innovators. Because they learn by doing. You learn by playing. You learn by creating. You learn by doing this. And I tell these stories throughout the book. This is what they describe in East Africa in Swahili as juakali. Juakali means hot sun. 
And you see this, like you don't just see this in East Africa, you see this in Bangladesh, you see this in India, you see this in, in Latin America, you actually see this even in LA, <laughs> which is amazing. Which is people taking apart technologies that have been designed to die, right? We all know that with our like iPhones that they have a model of being designed to die, what's called planned obsolescence, which isn't that dissimilar. I mean, I'm gonna be a little inflammatory here, but not that dissimilar than Monsanto having a model of designing seeds to die. Right? And it's very interesting. These indigenous communities often talk about their technology initiatives as seeds, semias. It's very interesting to like hear that. The seed is kind of often a metaphor that's used. So what is her name's Maria? What's she doing here? She's actually taking e-waste and she's breaking it apart. She's pulling stuff out of there and she's creating new technologies out of it. And it's not just a fetish about digital technology. People are doing this with everything. And you all have seen this stuff, like tires tables, desks, metal, you know, everything is being repurposed, recycled, repaired, and recombined. And that's why it's so important at the minimum that we get through this right to repair stuff here in this country. That's a policy proposal that I've put into some stuff that I'm writing for a bunch of mainstream media outlets right now. That's very important. I tell the story of Eric Lundgren in, in Los Angeles who's taken over like an e-waste landfill and has built all sorts of new awesome machines about it. And now he has a felony conviction and he's going to be in jail for over 30 years for it, for building new machines out of waste. And that is really important because the innovation that it can occur from people in places who have an awareness and consciousness of their environmental, cultural, and economic realities is profound. You can't just drop it from the sky. You can't just build it around these models of scalable invisibility that a lot of tech companies are tethered to. These are folks called AB3D. I tell their story in the book, Africa Born 3D. They started on the street. They are Juakali guys. They say to me, hey, Ramesh, we are not just Juakali guys. We now have a roof. <laughs> so we're hot sun with a roof. How do they do that? Do you see what they're making here? Does anyone want to tell me what you think you're seeing here? 3D printer. Yeah, you got it, Michelle. They're building 3D printers out of about 60% e-waste. And they are building these 3D printers, and I'm not just trying to exoticize this, they're actually building better 3D printers than American and Chinese ones. Why are they better? Well, they're not just way less expensive, they are, but it's because they're mechanically, with every mechanical engineering test that they try to do on the technology, they're more resilient. Why is that? Because they're built by people who understand the constraints, right, of the environment within which they're distributing these technologies. They understand that if you might have to throw a little rubber washer in there to deal with like the vibration of the traffic on the street in Kampala and in Tebe, where I was like looking at an AI labs initiatives to do other type of stuff like this. You can build stuff that's more environmentally resilient, that's more culturally resilient, that's more economically sustainable by supporting and empowering, and they're just doing it themselves, innovators. And that allows me to kind of close this by asking, what is innovation? What is resourcefulness? How can we understand that as this technology world has globalized and infused every aspect of our lives, how do we ensure that we return on the values of thinking beyond the valley, supporting beyond the valley, learning from beyond the valley. And that's why I wrote this book. So I'm happy to talk to you all and take questions after Shahid asked me some. Thank you very much. I hope and trust everyone else is as inspired and uh, enticed by the vision that Ramesh is sharing uh, as I am. Couple questions, maybe one, this idea of equity and global inclusion that I'm hearing, um, you know, not just the dystopia of Facebook, but the decentralized 
future and past, right? Um, what does that look like as we look here in a region that is so steeped in the dominant paradigm of corporate innovation? What does it look like maybe at the user level? And we, I think when you talk about the gig economy, you talk a little about the worker level and the enterprise level. I'm curious about the top and the bottom of the chain, like the VC level and the user level. How can we as internet users build that equity and what are your recommendations for people who are you know the puppet masters of the capitalist system how do we engage that arena i remember you asked me this question two years ago and i'm going to try a better answer than i had last time <laughs> um, so um yeah i i i have some cons what i called conservative proposals a couple years ago they haven't quite been implemented yet but I do consider them fairly conservative proposals, and they're multiple in their scope. This is we're starting with the the VC guys and the and the exec guys. First of all, there's a there's a great love in Silicon Valley, and I have a lot of friends at tech companies who are much more wealthy than I'll ever be, um, to do A/B testing, right? Which is meaning, like, hey, what if we did introduce this design intervention into our technology platform that might show some sort of what Elizabeth Warren described to me as a social contract with their users, right? So let me give you an example. What if Google told us what data they might have on us or when they're collecting data on us or whether they or others have collected credit card record data on us? Would that what would that do? Would that affect their bottom line? That's a very simple proposal. Or what if we knew what aspects of ourselves are influencing what we see? You know, heuristically, you can't, of course, there's so much data, you can't parse it out quite as simply as that. Or what if we were allowed to experience these platforms, these are my conservative proposals, as different visualizations, right, where I can kind of navigate and browse. Remember when we all used to, like, how many of you use the term surf? to describe your internet, your internet. You do still work? A l little bit. <laughs> There's a little bit that goes on. There's a little bit. But it's not as common, right? The browsing and surfing. Because instead, information is finding us. But how? We have no idea. Well, we do know that the choices of what information finds us, and I forgot to say this, is based on computational decisions that are made by large-scale matrix algebra systems of what will keep our attention, keep you online. And algorithmic systems are doing the same. They're feeding us content that releases the dopamine in our brains, like car crashes, and that gives that f makes us look at stuff more and more and more. Okay, so, so proposals like that. I have a piece I'm writing right now called the Digital Bill of Rights that I'm gonna be putting out into the mainstream media. I'm calling it a Bill of Rights so it, Americans across the board can be into it. I'm not, I could have called it digital justice, but I'm not going to do that. Um, and in that, I'm talking about these kinds of proposals. Let's regulate data brokers. Let's regulate a AI systems. Let's ensure that AI systems that are going to affect people are designed by people most vulnerable, every stakeholder in our society. Let's ban facial recognition. Great work, San Francisco, on that, at least for now. You know, Let's think about scaffolding these issues. So for at the top... A-B testing, experiments in disclosure, transparency, experiments in accountability. Don't just say, hey, we'll just build better AI, because that's what Zuckerberg has said many times. We'll just ta we'll take care of these problems in-house, and I'll take the abuse on Capitol Hill, and then I'm going to do what I want to do. That's kind of the strategy we see. Or Jack's proposal with Twitter, which is a whole other thing, right? Which is like, oh, we're going to ban political ads, but they make no money off of political ads. And what they're going to legitimate are, are banning political ads from advocacy groups, while corporate ads, which actually support uh, political issues that har harm working people, are going to be considered normal and fine. 
that that's that's actually a reading of what the Twitter policy is. So we there has to be disclosure. Now for all of us as users, I think it's important for us to think about all the different ways we can play with technology, right? I don't think we're going to just escape surveillance of all forms. I don't think that's a realistic proposal. We can play with encryption technologies. You know, I use some sometimes. We can think about what that means. But I think more than anything, we have to support Congress people and representatives and senators who are ready to do something about this. And believe it or not, this isn't me just being like a progressive pipe dreamer here. There is bipartisan agreement in this country. Vox did a poll on this. There is bipartisan agreement for different reasons, but Republicans don't like this stuff either. People across the board, for different reasons, people across the board are concerned about what's occurring here. So we need to pressure our representatives. We need to appeal to the media. We need to um, even play with our own digital footprints. Let's be thoughtful about what data we want to give up to whom. Um, but it's not, it's not an easy, easy uh, task right now for the user. The user is very vulnerable because they're no longer users. They are objects targets. and targets, yeah. especially vulnerable communities. You know, I think you can get a lot of traction with policy issues in this country, and I have gotten some talking about individual privacy, and that bothers everybody, or why does this, you know, ad for diapers follow me around everywhere, or what have you, right? <laughs> but that's fine. Go where people want to go. But actually, the effects are much more pernicious at scale. And I didn't even talk about the global issues with algorithmic issues, the impact it had on the Rohingya, you know, in Myanmar, the impact it had on on terrorism and attacks on Muslim people in Sri Lanka, how Rodrigo Duterte, like a brutal killer in Philippines, has been using WhatsApp, how Narendra Modi has been using WhatsApp, or his warriors, WhatsApp warriors, they're called. Bolsonaro. So, Bolsonaro, maybe the worst of them all in Brazil. I mean, they're all pretty bad. Yeah. Maybe uh, on that direction, thinking about the the future innovation potentials to specifically in the context of quantum mechanic, quantum computing, and the mechanics of inhibiting surveillance. You know, so many of our countermeasures to state surveillance to protect dissent and ultimately democracy are grounded in availing ourselves of encryption tools that, that enable some degree of protection from state and corporate surveillance. But we know that with predictable advances, particularly in quantum computing, that that might have a shelf life. Kind of analogous to the response that you noted, I think it was Zuckerberg making on the facial recognition front that, oh, we'll fix the bias problem in-house. You all don't have to worry about that. You know, it, it, the innovations in some ways are, are obviating potential threats, which create their own threats to being co-opted. But at least in the encryption sense, it's a very direct threat to how do you uh, see or how maybe have you seen any of the innovators, particularly in the global south, responding to guarding the use of encryption going forward? That's a great question. So a lot of the a lot of global South communities that are kind of activated in this space that are um, that are really trying their best to kind of engage with these these technology issues in whatever ways they can, those communities are doing everything they can to try to like to try to build their own networks, you know, to try to like build their own spaces. But to be honest, it's not a it's not it's not been easy, you know. There's not a lot of understanding amongst those communities of how they are objects of these issues, how they are objects of these. You know, I'll give you a very simple example. Uber uh, drivers, uh, I, I don't know, how, how many of you knew that Uber existed in, like, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, and so on? So I attempt, I, I, um, 
I um, went, I, I, I attended multiple Uber driver strikes that I described. And what people are doing there, it's not a great answer to you, but what people are doing there are trying to work around these systems. You, you know, in India, for example, back in the day, you used to go to the street corner and grab a three-wheeler, an auto rickshaw. You can now call them on Uber. <laughs> you can now retrieve them on Uber. So there's been an infiltration of the informal economy, but the problem is, is when issues occur for these drivers and workers, none of that actually, there's no governance, there's no justice, because Uber is 8,000 miles away. This is a very similar issue to what's plagued Facebook. There, I heard off the record that there are only 20 people at Facebook working on their global governance team Jesus. for a country with millions and millions of users, you know? And a country that skewed, or a company that skewed the 2016 elections, at least, when we talk about Cambridge Analytica and everything else. Um, you referenced in passing the idea of dividends and rooting it in the historical example of Alaska and elsewhere, and you, you mentioned the data dividend. Um, just curious what you think about Governor Newsom's proposal in particular and how you see that aligning with or against the vision that you set forth. Yeah, I, I, I'm concerned with proposals that think that they can pay people for their data, which is a common proposal that we hear about these days. Partly people are thinking about doing that through blockchain technologies and other stuff. Um, there's many reasons for that. First of all, how do we really know what our data is worth? Who's supposed to tell us what our data is worth? Like, uh, trust me, when I was 18 years old and I was releasing data, I mean, it wasn't I'm that old where that, there wasn't much of that happening uh, to the same extent then. I was kind of worthless. Now I might be worth a little bit more, uh -huh. but is my 18-year-old data worth more in many years or not? So this is the first issue, right? Like, how do we even capture and understand value for data? And, and how do we ensure that that data is still ours, you know? That's another issue. Like, you know, how can we, for example, you know, if you choose you no longer want to have a Facebook account, you know that Facebook still gets to keep your data, right? This, I, I was at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and Mark Zuckerberg literally said this in front of us. Um, it's, it's an issue. Like, so this kind of idea of micropayments per data seems like a very socially difficult thing to resolve or answer. I mean, it feels good. It's kind of a little like the dividend stuff to me. Reminds me of UBI. The it reminds yeah. me of that. It's. I mean, look, the, it's good for us to start talking about this stuff, and I appreciate that the governor is doing that. You know, an entry point to a longer conversation, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe let's go to uh, Facebook and Twitter. And you mentioned their competing policies with respect to political advertisements. So just to set this up, folks know that. Facebook monetizes and allows the famous exchange now between Representative Ocasio-Cortez and the founder of Facebook in Congress last week in which she defends the platform's decision to allow people like me to promote fake news, basically, online. Uh, Twitter made a very different decision, banning all political advertising, but leaving, at least as I've heard, ambiguous this question about how to treat like fossil fuel extraction advertising. Um, so our campaign released a fake ad about Speaker Pelosi, in which we thanked her for giving away all her mansions to house homeless folks. And uh, <laughs> we did that on Friday. It's up online now. You can check it out. Um, and we did that particularly to, because we can't, you can't do fake news against somebody like that, right? That, that doesn't work. But I'd be curious to understand, as, we, as users push back on the concept of fake news, and I want to distinguish between, on the one hand, you know, censoring content versus refusing to accept money to promote it, Right, So it's not like anybody's talking about denying anyone like me First Amendment rights. But beyond allowing the First Amendment rights of politicians and political actors, how 
do you see the threat in allowing paid political advertising building on Facebook's established track record of malfeasance and uh, undermining our democracy? That's a great question. So Facebook made $300 million, a little over $300 million um, in selling ads, political ads, in 2018. Twitter made less than $3 million. Um, so that's so it's important to understand that the business models are fairly distinct from one another. Both companies uh, profit off of uh, content that can scale out and be, and be inflammatory, nonetheless, right? And that is because their algorithmic systems have realized that one way to keep people's attention, as I mentioned earlier, is to um, feed them with stuff that will keep their attention, right? Because keeping their keeping one's attention means you have them, and that means you can behaviorally take them in whatever paths you want to take them, and that also means you can transact and extract data of all forms out of those forms of interaction. So. This is this is why you know I could be a progressive, you could be a progressive, we could both be South Asian, we could both be around the same age, but when we both log on to the same platform, we could have completely different experiences. And the reason why is these things are micro-targeted to an individual, and as we found out with Cambridge Analytica and the Russian government, um, there's not really evidence on the impact of this. I do want to agree with what Glenn Greenwald says about that, but but at the same time. <laughs> we did find out. We did find out that that was also targeting us on a psychometric level, meaning that we were provided content based on what would get our. It's you know, it's not that he's like a you know early forty something professor. It's that he's neurotic in these ways. He's you know open in these ways. He's conscientious in these ways. So the data that we were being fed data that could inflame us or manipulate our behaviors in various ways. So this is a long way of saying that unless that is the issue that's dealt with. The, uh, the ways in which algorithmic systems are being used to divide and conquer us and, and freak us out, quite that, 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 that's the form of governance that we need much more of, Absolutely. rather than ads that can go viral on different platforms but fit different business models. Social media networks that bring us together instead of driving us apart. Yeah, yeah. And part of that is auditing. So I did my first book event with Kathy O'Neill. Some of you might know her. She wrote a book called Weapons of Math Destruction. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's a really cute title, and it's a great book um, in Brooklyn. And then and and so she and I like had a great time talking about these issues. And she always talks about auditing, right? Like you know every like every system. Here's another thing: we are all interacting with AI systems all the time without even knowing it. AI systems are embedded into infrastructures. They're embedded into Internet of Things systems, right? Do, do you know what I mean? Like, we're not, it, there, we need even disclosure around that. That would be an important start as well, let alone transparency and communicability. You referenced in, uh, also in somewhat passing, but I think there's a longer story maybe to share around the right to repair yeah. and the way you've been seeing it used in these communities around the country, people remixing and recycling and innovating, not just to, to recycle, but going beyond sort of what they've started with. Can you talk a little bit about the right to repair? I want to link this particularly to a corporate actor here. We've been beating up on Facebook a little bit, right, which is a shitty company from a standpoint of data <laughs> predation. There's lots of shitty companies out there. People often contrast Facebook with, say, Apple as a company with a very different business model, doesn't rest on corporate surveillance and data harvesting. You know, the company's made historic. We found out different things recently, but sure. I want to hear about that, but just thinking particularly about Apple on DRM, on the right to repair, Apple has been very much one of the leading voices in corporate industry against users denying their purchasers of products and services the opportunity to share your iTunes 
purchases or Right, yeah. reverse engineer your tractor yeah. to make sure that the yeah. software can get updated so you don't have to go back to yeah. the manufacturer and pay out of the nose every time you need to fix some random thing like you might have before in a 1.0 environment. So, can, yeah, can you tell a little bit about from yeah. a policy lens and what you'd recommend there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Apple, now we're finding out, Apple just admitted about two weeks ago that it actually is at times recording our Siri conversations and is recording us uh, on the phone. They had made their brand uh, in a sense. Remember, the branding campaigns are important to understand with these companies. They're different in some ways, and sometimes they're similar. But often it's public-focused branding, right? I mean, Apple literally calls, I make this point in the book, Apple literally calls its retail centers town squares, or at least it used to as of last year. Uh, that's interesting, right? Civic language for private companies. That's really interesting. And I give the example of being in Madrid, Having my laptop was stolen in Ibiza, long story, and I and I <laughs> and I walked in. I walked in to the to the town square, the the Puerta del Sol, which is like the central square of all of the country of Spain, and the most like, and it just looked like every other building, but it had a bright shiny apple on it, and it was the much most. It was by far the most trafficked building in the Puerta del Sol, much more so than like these museums and parliament buildings and so on. So it's just notable, right? But what I'm getting at here is Apple is in the data collection business increasingly. We're starting to see some evidence of that. I mean, how, how do you all think about the fact that you can have retinal scans to unlock your phones, right? Or like obviously their fingerprints was a old technology, right? Um, but each of these companies are push, are, 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 are threatening and blocking uh, workers and all of our interests in different ways, right? It doesn't suit Apple's interests as, a, you know, they're both hardware and software and cloud, but it doesn't suit their interests for us not to be hooked on these on the on buying these dumb phones every couple of years every couple of years or let alone the dongle thing you know let me tell you about the time <laughs> anyway so um so yeah that relates I think to the resource mineral extraction that you were that's talking right about before yeah and the resource issues right which is also interesting right because the minerals in a sense that form the form our phones that form our electronics come from like congolese mines and then when these phones go to die they're in ghanaian uh, e-waste uh, places Right, so it's actually interesting to see the territoriality, right, of of where these where this digital world starts and ends, you know, in a sense, a, a, a digital life cycle that brings all things back to where they came from. Yeah, fascinating. Last question for me, and then we'll turn it out to the audience. You mentioned also the Chinese Social Credit Core Score yeah. program, and we I think everybody might have seen the digital, uh, probably the Black Mirror episode, the nosedive that that reflects on this digital dystopia. Do you see the U.S. or our society here effectively adopting one in piecemeal and secret through the like? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's a really good thing. So we, we do already have systems of credit worthiness, right? But we don't often know where those scores are based or where they come from. We just know that uh, <laughs> sometimes uh, there are data leaks and hacks that come from like companies like Equifax and so on. Um, Yes, so I actually go into the book, uh, into the, I, I think some of you might find this interesting, into the history of debt itself. And uh, David Graeber has written a great book uh, called, uh, what's it called, History? The first, the first yeah, the first, yeah, you, I knew you guys would know it. First 5,000 Years, and that's such a good book that kind of really breaks down debt. And note that the term debt, much like credit, right, they're kind of seen as different, but they're actually dialectically connected. But debt is actually the, the word uh, it's the root of the word indebted, indebtedness, right? So 
in a sense, what we see occurring here are ways to organize and discipline society. It's classically Foucauldian um, it, around around digital footprints and people's creditworthiness and their indebtedness. And so the Chinese, do, do you all know the social credit system that I'm speaking about? Okay, basically you can get on a plane, you can get into something, you can't get into something, your class of service, your life chances are determined through stuff that's being collected about you that you have no idea about. You can even be publicly shamed on LED billboard screens for like jaywalking like in China. I show some images of this in the book. So the point I'm getting at is, yes, we are headed there, but there's a, t and this is what I learned can in I China. Can I offer just one yeah. more pernicious aspect? If you're a dissident, you can lose your house. Or, you know, you can lose custody of your kids if you're too critical of the state, right? This is very, like, there, there's community shaming, but then there's, like, also very hard applications of authoritarianism leveraging this kind of pervasive data collection. That's exactly what I was going to say, that it's actually what you see is the kinship between authoritarian systems of power and various types of technological innovations. Questions from y'all? I think we're all really curious to hear what, what you all are thinking and intrigued about. I wanted to ask you about any limits or risks you see to what you've kind of outlined for us as kind of consensus innovation. And framing that in another way, like, why didn't open source win? Yeah. Right? Like, we've had so many models of collectivized technology, and yet, like, time and time again, we find ourselves wondering, like, is it market forces that make the like VC funded model win, or are there maybe some problems we need to face about consensus innovation that like don't work? Mm. at the scales they evolve, and you gave us this example of the mesh networks yeah. within the cloud forest themselves being like, hey, you know what, we don't want to scale. And does that then set up a paradigm of like, the only people who want to scale are the market forces, and therefore question. they win. So I wanted to kind of That's ask a you a bit question. about like, this doesn't seem to be a problem of there's no alternative. It's like, what if people don't choose the alternative? That's great. Why? That's such a, did you all hear that more or less? Yeah. So like, you know, there's one model which says, hey, I'm going to build this here and everybody just kind of like buy my thing or sign on to my service or just kind of, you know, sign into my like my like network of surveillance extraction. Right. That's one model. Another model is saying, hey, here's an idea of like local and in some ways decentralized governance where values are returned to businesses but also consumers but also workers but also the environment like uh, it's kind of a more systemic thinking and we're going to apply that model or that model can be interpreted and applied by people in places in local ways and that's a different notion of scale right it's more like lo locality and replicability right and so that's another model, right? And in the open source world, I think a lot of why it didn't scale out was it, it's, a, it's an issue for a lot of technologists. It wasn't necessarily culturally connected to the, to the range of different communities. It was too difficult to build out. And honestly, a lot of the efficiency by which these systems were built were built in a very kind of, if you will, user-centric way, but in a way that made it all very easy to kind of sign on to, you know, the scale of it, actually. So I think to your point is, you know, another conservative proposal for Facebook. Instead of letting these, uh, these disastrous outcomes occur, where like, you know, I mean, I give a ton of examples in the book, or other companies, like, you know, let's give people in places at least whether it's governments or organizations or partner with people who actually understand these places, let's give them greater governance, greater ability to mediate as human beings, to mediate that technology platform, that technology system's relationship 
with the places and peoples I live in. Do, do you get my point here? So like, for example, like what if it, instead of Facebook, you know, Facebook basically mischaracterized the Rohingya. Do you all know the story? Like who were basically having a genocide occurring against them. They characterized them as the terrorists and they therefore all their content didn't circulate. And so we were fed this narrative both locally and globally, like nationally and globally, that the Burmese government, which was uh, the one executing people and killing people, wanted. So what could Facebook do instead, right? That's the question for me. It can't be resolved. I mean, I'm not blaming them for this. It can't be resolved simply in Palo Alto, <laughs> right? That, like they, they don't know the specifics of Bur Burma's history and so on, but you can partner with people and it can't just be invisible, exploited content moderators who are looking at like dick pics, you know? It can't just be that. That's not partnering. That's invisibility of labor, right? So the question for me is, what do those partnerships look like? How, it, how That represents the jobs of the future. That's what I was trying to say. Like, let's get the digital economy going in a way that, this is my conservative proposal, benefits everybody, that is not zero sum. Please. I wanted to respond to his question. Now, yeah, also, sure. Also, somebody called uh, Dimitri Kleiner. He's a leftist programmer and author. And, uh, nice. and I think the, the thing that I want to draw here is between you asked about why decentralized solutions don't often don't get chosen. And um, the, the big thing I want to point out is that when companies choose a solution, decentralized mesh models, they don't offer a choke point where profit can be extracted, right? So a lot of these situations, a decentralized mesh solution is the appropriate one and it works. Um, but because there's no way for capital to say, hey, we're going to accumulate all that and extract wealth out of this, we're not going to choose it. So this speaks to exactly why Uber is 30,000 miles away and then, they, you know, there's a big divide there. If you want to know more about it, Dimitri Kleiner wrote, uh, there's a large work called Telecommunist Manifesto that talks about this divide and structuring stuff so that we benefit each other. A lot of these systems would scale better if they were mashed and distributed, but it all gets forced through a choke point so they can be fine. Thank you. Matt, right. Yeah. I was just going to add something to that. Well, bringing up this uh, more decentralized or um, more of like, I guess, the idea of like a local uh, a local concept on what's going on and relating that to permaculture. And, yeah. Uh, this idea of, uh, you know, somebody, yeah, thousands of miles away might have some ideas about what's going on where you're at, but would you trust them or would you trust maybe your neighbor that's lived there 60 years to tell you what's going on where you're at? Yeah. And then I guess chiming in with what you said is that I think that a lot of this stuff is based on fear. And that people don't trust, they, they'll trust a bigger corporation and the facts that they're giving them over maybe their neighbor in this way where it has this credibility or this idea and how, just the idea, and I wonder what you have to say about this, yeah. is how, how a lot of this plays off, off of people's fears and ultimately like this collection of data is supposed to give people more security or people are mm. joining these social networks because they might have a better chance at a better job or making more money and they eliminate yeah. their fear of you know dying of poverty or not having a, a connection with their peers you know and how much yeah. fear plays into this and also the way that relates with capitalism so just yeah i mean i think that I think, you know, like we benefit in, I, you know, I, I know I didn't give much voice to this, but there's a lot of benefit in participation in large scale and global networks that can exist. It doesn't have to come. That's my main point with these costs, right? There's a lot of value in 
you know, people have found in like joining networks where they can be provided with a range of different opinions, different news sources. This is not what's happening now, but that is possible. The internet's amazing in that way. We still love the internet in a way. Um, we found that the internet can facilitate people finding jobs through weak tide social network connections. There's, I'm not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but the issue here is, so, so there's that sense of implicit security that's provided by people as they sign on to things, not to mention that the stuff that comes our way is great at grabbing our attention, and that's an entertaining thing in a way. I don't want to undervalue that. It just, it just doesn't need to be wired in a zero-sum way. I think that's what I'm getting at. And now, again, I want to reference the point that now people across the board in this country are worried about what's going on. And that's a very powerful moment that we're at. I participated in a debate with this European Union parliament member. I was on, she was on her side. That was called the EU is declaring war on US tech companies. Wow. And we were like, of course they're not declaring war. And we won the debate, but like, and it was on like wired and stuff, but it was like that what what we what we need is governments or sovereign entities or civil society organizations or activists or journalists to say, "Hey, we're going to mediate our people, the people that we work with the the people who are local to us, their relationship with your technology, and the companies need to engage in active forms of collaboration so they don't give in to that as far as the point about like uh, permaculture and so on. It's all about like, he, he, this is all about people in places who understand and respect the environment and communities within which they live, innovating from that perspective. That's why I, I intentionally put the word innovators in the, in the title of this book. You might notice that that's in the subtitle of this book. And the reason I did that is I'm trying to take back that term and get it back to an understanding of innovation that existed before we kind of simply kind of bought into a brand, you know? So others, uh, yeah, uh, okay, uh, please, yes, sir. Okay, Michelle, yeah, we'll go with there and then to Michelle. Bring up, um, sort of my question is related to sovereignty and resistance and, and coordinating those two factors. We're dealing with these global corporations that have extraordinary economic power and financial influence with governments to have all these policies that, that take out the sort of, sort of, take out the legs of resistance, if you will. But we are also here in this forum about talking about forms of global resistance with regards to design, repair, and innovation from there, as well as you know, forming sovereignty within tribes. The question is actually, where are the big friction points, and is it specific language where it's inhibiting this form of collaboration resistance? Mm -hmm. Because we're dealing with these global forces, and we're dealing with sovereign tribes in a certain way. Yeah. But there's a disconnect of it seen between sovereign tribes being able to form some form of collective resistance against these larger forces. And so how can we say overcome that and to what extent is that based in the language itself? Yeah. So, you know, I've I've been um, actually thanks to a friend of Ryan's that I met in the Redwood Forest, I've been collab I've been talking to uh, Yanis Varoufakis's chief of staff. This is who knew I would meet this guy in the forest. Zully's like brother. It's incredible. So so like, <laughs> so 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 there. So what I'm getting at here is there are attempts to build progressive coalitions on the policy level um, across different different uh, parts of the world, like like Bernie movements, you know, in a lot of different parts of the world, right? And so that is actually part of what I think is occurring here. 
I don't think I agree with you on the level of like the level of a community or language itself. Those things are hard to kind of merge in and of itself. But I think there are people who are representatives of those communities who work with those communities who are trying to build and mediate across them. And I think that's kind of the way we need to go. But I do agree with you. It's like I think a lot of the questions I'm getting are about locality and scale. And, I, and it's kind of the questions I get all the time, and I really understand and appreciate that. My goal is not to just be sort of an anthropologist and say, hey, this is going on, that's going on, that's going on, but to also speculate on what's occurring in those places and how those experiences speak to a sort of human relationship, like a community's relationship, people who have a bit more of a, a sort of intimate connection with others and their places and their values and their spiritual systems, their, you know, their ethical systems, and what can grow out of that, right? And I think that's, that's kind of where we need to go. I mean, look, I mean, the most popular politician, I mean, the media doesn't report this, but the most popular politician in this country is trying to stand, and I know I'm a surrogate, but like, is trying to stand with like people and places, with working people and places, you know? And there are other great ones running too. But like, there's something about that that is translatable, that can scale. Yeah. Earlier you commented on the vulnerability of users. What, in your opinion, is the power and responsibility of users in yeah. all of this? Yeah, so what is the role of re users? I think it's just for users to uh, buy these books. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> I'm just being shameless there. No, um, to, to, uh, to generally just sort of like uh, read about the, read about and learn about like what's occurring. I don't even say it's their responsibility, but I think that would be helpful for all of us to kind of know what's, know what's going on, to advocate and support representatives and politicians and journalists who actually take, actually care about these issues, whether they're tech people or not. It's not really about, this book is not about technology, this, the, even though I write about it. The book is about like a certain type of view of the world, you know? That's why I wrote it. And I didn't write it in my typically academic way. You know how hard it was for me to write this this way? I had to unlearn every tendency I had to, br I didn't just cling to words, I had to break my sentences in half, et cetera. So here's the point I'm trying to make. Support people, let's read journalism, let's, let's, there, are, there is bipartisan consensus, like let's actually deliver on this. Um, support businesses that are actually supporting these outcomes, which ones there are, you know? Um, it, it's kind of like, but on the level of an individual user, it's a tough slog. Uh, encryption could be valuable at times. Um, but I think on the level of an individual user, it is a tough slog, but it's all about us like working with people, just like the individual communities. It's about working with movements around these themes. You know? So we're going to try everything we can with that. You know? That's where we want to go. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I guess I was thinking about um, your question about open source earlier, and um, you responded, I think, kind of around hardware and software, and I was thinking around content and whether your book covers I hope is the successful model of uh, Wiki, uh, Wikipedia, which is um, localized all around the world and is built uh, not just by the communities who care about that content, but it, it gets really down in the um, into the weeds, right, within um, different yeah. communities. So what about Wikipedia? Like, is it a success story, or is there some? I'm critical of it, yeah. but I but I also hear what you're saying, and it's it it was and is an amazing experiment. It's something like worth noting, and it's it's way better than like you know the Oxford Encyclopedia, 
And and Craigslist too. Craig, you know, supported this book, and that was really cool of him. He didn't come here, but like, <laughs> he tweeted out the book, and he's a cool guy. You know, he's really dedicated to supporting journalism and journalists. Um, Craig Newmark, I mean. And um, the, the the main the main concern I have the main concern I have is on the global level. Um, you know, there I I uh, maybe this maybe the studies aren't on on this, but I was reading Mark Graham's work at the Oxford Internet Institute. And he's kind of been finding again and again and again that Wikipedia contributions and edits tend to be disproportionately global north, male and, and white folk. And so, so that's an issue here, and not a lot of women involved in it. So again, I, that doesn't blame the, that's not intended to blame Wikipedia as a technology or even the actions of, but it just speaks to, uh, like, we got to get that further. So he has some stuff on wiki chains and wiki labor chains. It's really interesting. He makes cool visualizations too. Yeah, this is Mark Graham's work at Oxford. Yeah. This is my brother, by the way. <laughs> He's gonna try to stump me. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I have a question just about like so like in terms of the AI technologies. Um, I don't um, I don't understand them very well, but what I've heard is that um, the AI engineers themselves don't understand them very well either. So like the, that's in the sense of these deep neural networks, you know, they're extremely proficient at sort of taking in large sets of data and doing some kind of tasks, but when you you can't really sort of get any sort of sense of how, how it's actually working. And so that seems to like create a very like maybe pernicious tension with this issue of, you know, how do we make these algorithms transparent? How do we have levers that can affect how they work. And I, so I don't know if personal, if, I, I mean, whether that tension's a real one, um, but, or, and if it is, how, you know, can that actually be? Yeah. Well, there are some interesting groups. I interviewed them here in the Bay Area, actually, like uh, Partnership in AI and Open AI, and, you know, they're kind of threading the needle a little bit, you know, <laughs> and, and trying to, like, think about, the, I mean, the term that you often hear is diversity and inclusion. Uh, those are, that's kind of the business term almost for this stuff. Um, <clears throat> so they're trying to think about, which is super important, right? I mean, diversifying AI developers, diversifying auditors, diversifying like the impacts of the technologies. But what from what I do know, and again, I don't think my knowledge is very deep on this because I didn't have access, like firsthand access to stuff, but based on good work done by journalist colleagues and some academic stuff, though academics is often lagging on this stuff because of the way our our, our, our world works. Um, but like what I basically found out is um, that certain types of AI systems are optimized for certain dependent variable outcomes, right? And so like the, so AI systems that are in, that are influenced to optimize for keeping your attention have more or less found themselves to arrive at a fairly standard practice, which is feed you content that gets the dopamine going, that gets your attention, right? This is my colleague, Tim Wu wrote a book called The Attention Merchants about these themes. And he's one of the, his first book is way better than that, actually. It's called The Master Switch. That's my favorite book of his. I mean, not because this wasn't good, but that was a great book um, about net neutrality and so on, telecom and policy and so on. But this is, this is uh, I think, really important. You know, I mean, I think that um, there has been some evidence or some stories I read showing that the AI systems that are being built out of labs and companies and so on are taking on unanticipated sort of effects, you know, that even there, there might be some generative effects, emergent effects, so on, <coughs> with like language and so on that might be developed 
that's a big issue as well. Uh, you know, that kind of give, makes you think of like sci-fi movies and stuff like that, right? Um, so, you know, I think more or less we need to think about AI in partitioned ways. We should think about generalized AI issues and, and, and like Turing test type stuff and immersive AI. We should think about specialized AI systems in terms of automated systems. We also need to think about the prevalence and embeddedness of AI systems of, in all different aspects of our lives. So, yeah, I mean, that's a... It's pretty amazing, this stuff. It's fascinating, but it's also like, it feels like it's escaping our, all of our grasp. And that's an issue, too. But it's real. That's the crazy thing, right? Like, it's like, it's crazy what happened to my career. I just used to be someone who, like, not just, but it was, like, so amazing. I'd work and live with indigenous communities and write about technologies in, like, DIY, culturally diverse sense. That's what I come out of, right? And now it's like, I have to write about all this stuff because it's so real. And I want to like put my voice into the discussion about this because it's important to me. Check out the book, you know, everybody. Does anyone want to ask a last question or are we good? Can we all go to Vesuvio and I can get that beer I need? <laughs> all right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.